Well, hello and welcome to our weekly Bible talk. I know that this is the first one we've done in a couple of weeks, and uh, I got to tell you, this is the last one we're going to be doing for several weeks. Uh, Lord willing, this uh, weekend I'm going to head to Newport, Rhode Island for chaplain training. I think I've mentioned this before uh, probably several times, but in addition to being the pastor here at Trinity Baptist Church, I'm also a chaplain with the Navy Reserve which I love, and uh, up up to this point it's been a rather minimal commitment. I go once a week down to the uh, center in Indianapolis and drill up with the guys there. Um, and it, so far it's working well with my ministry, but uh, in order to be a chaplain you got to go to chaplain school, which is in Newport, Rhode Island, and that's what I'm doing. I'm going to be uh, flying out on Sunday morning early, uh, arriving in Providence, and then driving from Providence to Newport, where I'll study with other chaplains for uh, six or seven weeks. It's actually kind of funny. They've given me different dates as to how long I'm going to be there. Um, But if you'd pray for me, I'd appreciate it. Um, To be totally honest, it's not something I'm entirely thrilled uh, about doing. You know, you got to do it, and certain things like this are just, uh, you know, obligatory. Uh, But, you know, saying goodbye to my family, my wife and whatnot, it's going to be tough. Uh, And, you know, I love my church here, so it's going to be tough being away from them for uh, several weeks. So if you would pray that things go well, that I can walk in the light, that I might have ministry opportunities with others, that would be excellent. Pray that the Lord takes care of my family and that nothing crazy goes uh, on there. We've hired an intern pastor to shepherd the church while I'm away, so you might pray for his ministry, that God would bless it and use it uh, to uh, cause our church here thrive and grow. Uh, but because of that, we won't be having these Bible talks for several weeks. Lord willing, I intend to pick them up when I get back. We're going to pick right back up where we left off today. Lord willing, today we're going to look at chapter 8, uh, Exodus 8, 1 through 15, and then when we get back, Lord willing, I'll pick up in verse 16. Uh, but that's what's going on. Again, I appreciate your prayers. Today we're going to be talking about the plague of frogs in Exodus 8, 1 through 15. Uh, before we jump into it, let me pray and we'll uh, we'll get to it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you hear the prayers of sinful people. Lord, we are sinners. We recognize our fallenness, our attraction to sin, how incredibly easy sin comes to us, and we're ashamed of that. We hate that. We thank you for the way that all of our sins were placed on Jesus, and he suffered and bled and died for all of them. We thank you for the way that through faith in him we are declared righteous, that you view us and treat us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. And we do pray that you would help us to increasingly put our sins to death, to fight them, and to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And please, please manifest godly fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, so forth. Lord, we ask your blessing on our church the next several weeks here, that things would go very well, that you bless Pastor Tim Weeks, enable him to faithfully teach and preach your word, shepherd the sheep, and we pray that the church would thrive while I'm away. Please take care of me and my family. We pray that uh, no emergencies would take place, no calamities would take place. We do pray your just your hand of mercy on this entire season. Lord, as we read now your word, open our eyes and our hearts. Give us understanding. Give us conviction. Give us mind renewal. Use this time to, uh, to more and more conform our ways and desires and priorities to yours, uh, that we might increasingly submit our lives to your lordship. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, a really, really quick summary of the book of Exodus up to this point. The people of Israel are slaves to eat, slaves in Egypt. Pharaoh is a wicked, cruel taskmaster. He wants to actually kill the baby uh, Hebrew boys uh, so that they can't continue to reproduce. They can't be fruitful and multiply. Uh, God, in his mercy, in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, raises up Moses to be a deliverer. Moses doesn't initially want, want the job. He's not interested at all. But after some going back and forth, Moses finally relents and says, okay, I'll do it. He joins his brother Aaron, who's going to be sort of like his spokesman, and together they go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, that they might serve the Lord. And initially Pharaoh's like, I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let these people go. In fact, I'm going to make things even worse. And he takes away their straw, so they've got to make bricks without straw. 
So what the Lord says is that I'm going to send Moses to perform these plagues. Uh, these are going to be acts of supernatural judgment through which I'm going to humble Pharaoh and eventually break his back. But as we've seen already several times, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go until God's purposes are fulfilled. Uh, it's almost the idea as if he's going to uh, strengthen his stubbornness so that he won't let him go until the 10th plague. I know that that sounds kind of peculiar, but we've got to grapple seriously with what the text says says here uh, that it's almost as if Pharaoh would have let them go earlier had God not hardened his heart. Again, that challenges our preconceptions about what God is like, but let's let God tell us what he's like in Scripture, not just our intuition. The first plague that we saw was the turning of the Nile into blood. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, each of these plagues is directed toward a specific uh, Egyptian god. In a way, you could look at the uh, book of Exodus as almost like the war of the gods. You've got the god, Jehovah, versus the false gods of Egypt. And one by one, the Lord is slaying them, just cutting them down, turning them into blood and, and, and carcasses. Um, and what we saw a couple of weeks ago is that they literally worshiped the Nile as a god. You know, the Nile River, which flows through Egypt, if you remember your elementary sort of geography and whatnot, uh, caused this desert to bloom. You know, otherwise, Egypt is this desert, barren, you know, sand, nothing can live there. But this Nile River, it, it overflows once a year and it gives them crops and all, all sorts of blessings. They, they turned that into an idol and worshiped it. Well, if that's the case, what is God communicating when he turns the Nile into blood? He's basically saying, I've killed your God. Uh, you know, it's almost like battle, you know, what's, what's the score here? The Lord won, uh, Egypt zero. Uh, I've killed your first God. Well, we come to a second God here, and uh, you, you may have seen some of these depictions of the Egyptian gods. Do you remember Again, if you've seen like the Prince of Egypt movie or the Ten Commandments movie, or if you've ever been to a museum, uh, by the way, Indiana, uh, Indianapolis has an incredible children's museum. When my kids were little, we went there all the time. Um, and they've got quite an impressive Egyptian uh, section in the Indianapolis Children's Museum. And it is interesting that some of the gods that uh, we, we're going to be talking about are depicted there in uh, hieroglyphs and whatnot in the Indianapolis Children's Museum. But one of the gods that the Egyptian worshipped, it had a human body with the head of a frog. I can't remember right now. Maybe it's Hopni or something like that. Some of you who are into these sorts of things can look this up. Uh, But there was an Egyptian god, human body, uh, with the head of a frog. Uh, And that will be significant today because what does God do? But he brings all the frogs from Egypt into Egypt and then he slays them all. Again, indicating that I am the true God and your gods, Egypt, are dead idols. Let's read Exodus 8, 1 through 15 and see what the Lord has to say to us through it. Exodus, Exodus 8, 1 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country, all your country, with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedrooms and into your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. 
And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not let them go, as the Lord had said. Now, a few things to say here. First, you'll meditate on that verse 1 there. Let my people go that they might serve me. It's interesting the way in which uh, different groups have found different facets of that verse more or less popular. Uh, You know, there was a time when that phrase, let my people go, was often bantered about in public. Uh, You know, back in the civil rights era and other times, different uh, politicians even would use that phrase, let my people go, kind of implying that, you know, the government should let people be free and let, you know, almost this uh, kind of libertarian idea. Uh, They forgot, though, the second part of that, let my people go that they might serve me. The reason why God grants us freedom is not just so that we can live in any way that we please, but so that we'll serve him, so that we'll do his will. Uh, It's the same idea in salvation. God saves us by his grace through faith in Jesus us, not so that we can just live however we please, not just so that we can just, you know, uh, you know, go commit all sorts of licentious sin, but so that we would delight in the law of God and delight to do his will day and night. Uh, now, does that mean we're not going to sin? Of course not. Christians sin and sin a lot, and, and like I mentioned in my opening prayer here, we're ashamed of our sins, and yet that's really the, one of the reasons why we're saved. We're saved not just so that we can make it to heaven, but so that we'll gladly serve the Lord. And what happens in salvation is not just that our sins are forgiven, not just that our heaven is secured, certainly both of those are true, but also in salvation our hearts are changed so that we delight to do God's will, we want to do God's will. Again, we won't do it perfectly, um, but this is part of the salvation package. Our nature is renewed. It's really what it means to be born again. You know, you might even ask yourself, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus in John 3 and in other places, we're born again. What does that mean? That means that our hearts are changed so that now we look at the commands of God as good, as precious, as wise, and we want to do them. We want to serve the Lord. So maybe kind of keep that in mind. You see that stress here, but it's also true in our salvation. The reason why God lets us go from the world of flesh and the devil is not so that we have freedom to live however we want, but so that we might serve him, so that we might love our neighbor. Well, moving on, Moses warns Pharaoh that if you won't let him go, another plague is coming. And he explains what this plague is. The frogs are going to come out of everywhere, and they're going to flood this place. And what I want you to notice there is in verse 3, how many different places these frogs will invade. This You may have caught this as we read it initially, but why does he include so many different locations? I mean, he could have just said frogs are going to be everywhere, but instead he lists like 10 different places where these frogs are going to uh, go. You know, again, verse 3, the Nile shall swarm with frogs, it shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. And he keeps going. What in the world's going on here? Well, something very important that you need to catch about the plagues, and this is true not only about this plague, but about other plagues, is that what we're seeing is sort of the the reverse of the creation order in Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this universe, and he creates it sort of in phases. And what he does, he's 
separating things and putting them in their proper places. It's kind of like, imagine you had this great big junk drawer, and you, you take each piece out of the junk drawer and put it in its right place. You know, here you got a spool of string, and you put that over here with the string, and here you got some pens, and you put those in a jar of pens, and here you got a few uh, loose screws, and you put those in a can over with your screws. That's kind of what's going on with the creation account. God is taking this sort of disorganized mess isn't the really the right word because the original creation before Adam and Eve sinned wasn't sinful it was it was perfect but it was not properly organized so he's taking this disorganized creation you know separating the water from the dry land uh, separating the light from the darkness he's putting trees here and animals here he's putting everything in its place uh, so that creation is properly organized you following me What's going on with these plagues is that organization that was a good thing is sort of collapsing in on itself and things are going where they don't belong. You know, you think about frogs. Frogs are kind of fun. I mean, they're, they're, they make fun noises and they're kind of fun to play with. I remember as a kid, uh, if we caught a frog in the backyard, he was really kind of fun to play with. And, and even my kids today, uh, you know, if they catch a frog or something like that, it's kind of cool. It's almost like they found a toy or something like that. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with frogs, but uh, frogs in your bed, not good. Uh, frogs in your kitchen, not good. Frogs in the oven, no good. They, they, you know, they, they don't belong there. Uh, and what that's getting at is, again, the, the whole way in which creation is undoing itself in these plagues. A few lessons from that. First, I do think we should thank God for the organization and the, and the uh, separations that he has put in creation. You know, it's really good that, you know, humans can live here and grizzly bears are not trying to eat us. And it's really good that in your house, you know, if it's the case that it's not inundated with frogs, you should thank God for that. Again, frogs and grizzly bears, uh, they're good and they give God glory in their own sense. Uh, but there is a healthy thing to have things organized and in their right place. So let's thank God for that. Interestingly, when we come to Adam and Eve's original commission, part of their original commission was to further that organization. That's what I think he means when he says uh, uh, populate the earth, but uh, take dominion over it. Uh, it's as if here in the Garden of Eden, things are properly organized and you know everything's got its place, but you, Adam and Eve, have more kids, but then go out into the rest of creation and properly organize things. Uh, you know, have homes where the frogs aren't in the kitchen and have homes over here where there aren't, you know, rabbits running around the living room and, and you know, continue to bring that kind of organization to this creation like I've begun here in the garden. And I do think that part of that commission continues with us as the human race. Now, of course, Adam and Eve sinned, if you remember the storyline of Scripture, um, and, and part of that's messed up, and that's why we live in a very corrupt, uh, broken creation. I mean, this is why there are thorns and thistles and whatnot, and this is why you know animals sometimes eat one another and eat us and you know but at the same time that commission to continue to take dominion over creation remains with humanity uh, so we're, we're to continue to bring order out of chaos we're continue to rein things in uh, you know if you've got you know a piece of land and there are all these wild beasts and serpents and whatnot it's, it's a good thing to bring that into submission and to use that piece of property for the glory of God uh, now does this mean it's not okay to you know to have a wilderness no I mean I went to Yellowstone many years ago and it was really cool seeing buffalo and elk and whatnot. So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, in its place, that can be good. But again, part of the reason why humans are here is to continue to bring order to this uh, somewhat disorganized creation, but realize that that mission won't be fully accomplished until Jesus comes again and creates the new heavens and the new earth. It is interesting when you compare uh, the original creation with the new creation in the book, say, of Revelation. Uh, there are improvements in the book of Revelation. New creation weren't there in the original creation. The original creation was good, but it was not perfected. The new creation that Jesus is going to create is going to be both good and perfected. So there are benefits in the new creation that Adam and Eve's 
creation didn't have. Uh, there is a distinction, uh, at least you know, in the Bible, between, imperf- between lacking perfection and sin. The original creation was not sinful in any way, but it was not yet perfected because dominion needed to be taken. I, I realize that some of this, you might think, like, what in the world are you talking about? This sounds like you're splitting hairs. Uh, but hopefully you can pick up some of this and then grapple with Scripture and see if this is actually what the Scriptures teach. I think it is. But the point here is that what God is doing in Egypt is sort of reversing creation, uh, collapsing those distinctions that we take for granted and that we so appreciate. And again, let us appreciate the distinctions that God has made. There are actually a lot of distinctions in creation that we should appreciate. Uh, you know, again, uh, our world is trying to throw off God and throw off everything God has done. But there are a lot of distinctions that are good. The separation between light and darkness, a good thing. The separation between water and dry land, a good thing. I mean, what happens when the water envelops the dry land? I mean, you've got hurricanes, you know, it's a bad thing. So also, the separation between man and animal, good. We shouldn't try and marry animals. You know, it's, it, we, we keep that distinction. The separation between man and woman, good. Uh, we shouldn't try and blend and, and just sort of, you know, cause the genders to kind of, you know, blend all together. Maintaining these distinctions is a good thing because God is a wise, loving God and he gave them to us on purpose. And uh, woe to us if we think we're wiser than God and try to reject them. Anyway, that's probably enough for you to meditate on there on those themes. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, as, as Moses promised, the frogs come from everywhere. They inundate the place. And look at verse 7. The magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Uh, Now that is in a way such a silly verse, because why would they make things even worse? You know, if anything, they'd say, okay, we're going to show our power by getting rid of the frogs, but instead all they do is make things worse by bringing even more frogs. And how how they... showed that they were doing this and not Moses, I don't really know. Um, But what it does show is, again, A, the supernatural power of Satan, but B, the way in which his power is so negligible in comparison to God. God can do absolutely mighty wonders that the world cannot comprehend. I mean, create the universe out of nothing with a word. Satan can do supernatural stuff, but it's so, so minimal and negligible in comparison to God. Uh, you know, he can do things like turning a stick into a snake. You know, God can create a universe. Satan can turn a stick into a snake. Uh, they're not anywhere close to the same category, and yet we humans, because, you know, we're, we're, we love darkness so much more than light, we're impressed when we see a stick turn into a snake, and we can look at the creation and think, oh, look at that, it's evolution. Uh, it's just kind of how we are. But anyway, this, the magicians sort of illustrate their foolishness and the weakness of Satan by simply bringing more frogs, which again, try to imagine your pharaoh, you know, is he going to say like, thanks magicians for bringing us even more frogs? I mean, all you've done is make things worse. But I think it's kind of designed to highlight how hard Pharaoh's heart is. He's seeing these supernatural miracles, um, and as we're going to see, they correspond even with a time that he sets. You know, Moses says, give me a time when you want these frogs out of here. And he says, tomorrow? And he's like, all right, boom, they're going to be gone tomorrow. And they're gone tomorrow. Uh, So it's a bona fide miracle of God, and yet Pharaoh is so hard in his sin uh, that that he's unmoved. Uh, That's another big lesson that you learn from not only the book of Exodus, but also Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees, the uh, chief priests and Sadducees, bear miracles do not bring people to saving faith. Bear, bear miracles can just harden you in sin. Uh, you can just, you know, say that they're the power of Satan like the Pharisees did with Jesus. You can just ignore them and say, oh, you know, this is a, a, a trick, a magic trick or something like that. Don't think the real secret to reaching culture, reaching people's hearts is a miracle uh, because, again, that, that, that's been tried many, many times and people can just harden themselves in sin. From time to time you'll hear some atheists say, I would believe in God if I saw, uh, you know, that table float up in the sky. Or I'd believe in God if you caused my car to spin around in the air. Uh, actually, you probably wouldn't. You know, if you, if you saw your car spin around in the air, 
you'd probably just think like, uh, you know, somebody gave me some magic mushrooms before we had this meeting, or uh, you know, it was a it was a, a freak of nature. The wind just picked it up and blew. People can so easily reinterpret the supernatural as normal, as as nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, so don't be deceived into thinking that this is what would bring somebody to saving faith. And we've got so many examples of people in Scripture that that wasn't the case. It just hardened them further in sin. Anyway, I sort of alluded already to verses uh, 8 through following. They go, to Mo, they go to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord. And this is interesting. He says, uh, where is he says, plead with the Lord. And he's talking about Lord with all capitals. Yeah, verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said to them, plead with the Lord. I know I've talked about this many times, but whenever you see Lord in Scripture in all capitals, that's the covenant name of Jehovah. And here, Pharaoh's using that name. He doesn't just say, call on the big man upstairs, or talk to your God. He says, talk to Jehovah, uh, sort of suggesting that maybe he's making steps in the right direction, and yet just when you think he's making steps in the right direction, he turns around and hardens his heart. And that's sadly another reality that we could think of. Uh, There are people that seem to be close to salvation, but then they never come to saving faith, and we wonder what in the world happened. Um, The scriptures recognize that reality, and the scriptures recognize that you can be really, really close, and then for whatever reason, love your sin so much and reject it all. And Pharaoh, he's seeing these miracles, he knows Moses is speaking for the Lord, he's even saying, call on the Lord and he'll deliver me, Uh, but he personally never turned from his sin and embraced Jehovah as his God, and as far as we know, this Pharaoh died in his sins. Uh, So don't assume that because people are making steps in the right direction that they're necessarily going to be saved. Obviously that's our hope and our desire. We pray that they would. Um, but you can make steps in the right direction, change your mind, and make steps in the opposite direction. You know, the, obviously you've got incidences like Judas, you've got Simon the sorcerer, yeah, you've got all those individuals that Paul interacted with who then shipwrecked the faith. It's a sad reality, um, but people can show a lot of interest. They might come to church for you know, several months, maybe even a couple of years. They might read the Bible regularly. They might get involved in Bible studies and, and prayer meetings and whatnot and, and sound really spiritual and godly, uh, and then something happens, and you know, they harden their heart, and, and they fall away, and what it indicates is that they never actually believed in the first place. Uh, we, again, I think we've talked about these themes before, but in the last several years, we've seen some really prominent celebrity preachers totally apostatize. Uh, I don't mean just like fall into sin. A lot of people fall into sin without losing their faith, but I mean totally apostatize. Uh, you know, one of the pastors that really had a big influence on me when I was younger was Joshua Harris. And like three or four years ago, totally turned his back on the Lord, totally turned his back on everything that he had preached and written about. Um, and, and as far as I know, he's just a rank agnostic now. And that kind of shook me at the time. You know, how in the world, what, what happened here? Um, but I shouldn't have been surprised because the Bible talks about these sorts of things over and over and over again. You can make steps in the right direction. You might even appear for a while to be a true Christian. Um, but if you, you, you fall away, if you totally turn your back on Christianity, you make it evident that you were never a believer in the first place. Anyway, again, back to verse 10. Tomorrow, he said, you pick the time when you want these frogs out of here. Tomorrow. Uh, to indicate that this was not, again, some sort of coincidence. And it is interesting that it's not like Moses said, tomorrow we'll do this. He says, you pick the time. He could have said, you know, right now. He could have said next week. He could have said next month. But tomorrow, pinpointing the time, letting him, you know, almost like a magician letting you pick the card and then him telling you what card's in the, that, that's in your hand, that's what he does to, again, prove that the Lord is behind all of this. That happens. And notice what happens to the frogs. 
Uh, verse 13, the frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Now, imagine this, if you would, and I mean, this would have been nasty. Um, I, I did not grow up on a farm, but there have been a few occasions that I've been on farms around animals that uh, didn't smell too pleasant, and it was a nasty, nasty thing. Imagine probably millions of dead frogs in heaps, you know, maybe heaps as big as like minivans. And again, you know, not to get too graphic, but Egypt's a pretty hot place. So you got these piles of frogs as big as minivans in the hot sun. What are you going to do with these things? I mean, you, you can't, you know, eat them or anything like that. This would have been absolutely nasty. So it would have stank to high heaven. Uh, but again, keep in mind, they worshiped a God who was a frog. So what is the Lord saying through this? Uh, your, your, your frog God, he's a dead cadaver. Your frog, your frog God, he is nothing. He could do nothing to uh, save you from these frogs. And now, look, at they're all, they're all dead everywhere. So by the end of this second plague, we've got, you know, if we're keeping our tally here, we got Jehovah, uh, two wins, versus the gods of Egypt, zero wins. And, and if you know how the plagues go, you can guess what the score is going to be at the very end. Uh, but again, keep that kind of framework in mind, that this really is a battle of the gods. And, you know, with that framework in mind, who's the last god that he's going to take out? I won't tell you who it is. You know, stick with us, Lord willing, we'll get there eventually. But who's the last god that he's going to take out? And did you catch the reason why? Verse verse 10, this is why he's doing all of this. But be it as you say, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Uh, that's really the entire burden of the Exodus. The reason why God is doing this at the end of the day is an evangelistic motive. It's evangelistic, obviously, for the Hebrews, because again, a lot of the Hebrews weren't really converted, but he wants them to be saved. It was evangelistic also for the Egyptians. I think God wanted some of the Egyptians, or not some, I think he wanted the Egyptians to be saved. And when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, some of them do come out with the Israelites when they leave Egypt. And that's actually like midway through Exodus, it's not at the end. But also for us, so that we might be saved. Realize God was doing these signs and wonders way back here, 1400 BC, so that today people would know that there is no one like the Lord. Uh, So let that sink in. God does his great works so that people would be brought to saving faith. I suppose that's enough to meditate on for now. How might we pray this back to God? I mean, a lot of themes come to my mind. First, thank God for the distinctions that he's put in creation. Um, And in addition to that, think through how you might add to that. I mean, is your uh, uh, garage an absolute you know, junk drawer? Uh, it might glorify God to bring a little bit more organization there. Is your, uh, you know, your bedroom an absolute mess? You, know, you go in there and you know, there's, there's clothes up to your knees and you know, everything's all over the place and there's toys and there's uh, pens and you know, everything scattered everywhere. It would probably glorify God to bring a bit of organization to that room. Um, there, there is this theme, and we can, you know, maybe sometime if we walk our way through Genesis, Bringing order out of chaos is a way to glorify God. And you can start doing that in like your garage, your uh, uh, bedroom, but at the same time realize that that's part of humanity's purpose on earth to bring order out of chaos. Additionally, let's praise God that he is the true and only God and all the gods of this earth are dead idols. You know, we don't worship a God with the head of a frog, but we do, we're very tempted to worship other gods. Uh, You know, money, power, pleasure, sex, reputation, uh, career, family. We, We have our own idols, and like God went after the idols of Egypt, he's coming after our idols. And if we won't reject them, he'll cut them down and kill them to show us that they're absolutely dead and lifeless. So let's pray for grace to identify our idols and 
and uh, oppose them and put them to death uh, so that God doesn't have to slay them right before our eyes. But then praise God also for his saving desire for all people. I really do believe uh, deep down in my heart that God desires the salvation of every man, woman, and child without exception. Now, are all going to be saved? Of course not. You know, on that last day, many will say, uh, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do not, you know, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And yet in God's heart is a sincere desire for every last man, woman, and child. Uh, Let's pray that God develops that same desire in our hearts and that God uses us to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus. All right, we can pray for it. Let's pray and we'll be done. Pray with me. God in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to have this Bible talk and to meditate on these themes. We do thank you for what we've seen here in Exodus 8. Thank you, Lord, for the order that you've embedded in creation, separating light from darkness, water from dry land, uh, the animals from humans, and so forth. We thank you for all these uh, distinctions that we often take for granted. Do use us to bring greater order to this chaotic world. Lord, we do thank you for the way that you are the true and only God. Uh, Lord, help us to really believe that. It's so, so easy to worship idols. It's easier to worship anything other than you because of our sin. So help us to fight our idols and to worship you and you alone and to serve, love, and trust you above all else. And Lord, we do lastly thank you for your saving desire for all people. Uh, Lord, you are the God who uh, desires all to be saved. You're the God who uh, does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn to you and believe. So we do pray that you'd give us that same desire and use us to bring sinners to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Lord willing, I'll see you in several weeks. Bye-bye.